Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Season one, episode one of Story Shape podcast is go. Hello, Susan Cal. How are you this evening? Hello, Sinead Hart. I am good. Hot in London, but I'm really looking good. forward to talking about Elador. Yes, I'm so happy that we're starting our brilliant podcast with the most amazing book on earth. Uh, my absolute favourite book of all time. Um, and Susan and I tonight are t- today or whenever you're listening to your podcast episode, um, we are going to do a sort of a one on one deep dive uh, exploration of Elador um, and uh, the book and its themes and what it means to us personally um, and I suppose how it shaped our lives certainly it shaped my life in a very profound way um, and I'm really looking forward to talking about how it shaped my life in a profound way um, and yeah so that's that's what this week's episode is going to be about so I really hope you're all ready with your cup of tea or your cup of whatever you're having uh, to sit down and relax and enjoy listening to us talking a bit. Elador by Alan Garner, the master. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I think it's going to be really interesting because, as you say, it's like it's a book that's been it's had such a huge impact on you and your imagination, mm-hmm. um, and that you read it when you were really young. But I came to it recently, um, so I think that that the difference in our responses to it um, and the similarities in our responses to it are going to be really, really interesting to discuss. But I guess before we start getting into our deep dive on Elador, we should probably talk, introduce ourselves. So Sinead, tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> Hi, Susan. Um, <laughs> I am a person who lives in the Midlands of Ireland um, and I did a PhD many, many years ago with Susan in a place called UCD. So we've known each other for a long time. We've been buddies, acquaintances, uh, colleagues, all manner of things for over 20 years. And it's amazing to be here tonight uh, to talk to Susan about these this brilliant book. Um, it's great to reconnect with a person who uh, I respected and respect so much as an academic, as well as a, as a book lover and now as a children's author. We've uh, we've both found our, 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 our true path in life, which is to write books for children. And we're, we're, we're delighted to be to be on this path now. Um, and Elidor is not only a big reason why I'm an author, um, it's also a big reason why I became a medievalist first. And it is basically the reason why this podcast exists, because it was through Elidor and our shared, I suppose, love of this book that Susan and I first decided we would do um, this podcast. Um, but and actually, I, I think it was like it was right after I read Elidor because I, I read like Redshift and I read um, Treacle Walker and then I went back to the beginning mm-hmm. of Alan Warner. I think it was just after I read Elidor that I was like, I need I need to talk to someone about this. And I texted you. So yep. Elidor is that like it's keystone in this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love the way you started with Garner from, you know, kind of the opposite end to me almost like Redshift is a book. I think I've read it five times over the course of the last sort of 20 years and I still don't think I understand it. You know, I don't think I'm clever enough 
to get Redshift. Okay. Yes, me neither. <laughs> so uh, to think that you started with that, and, and I am just in awe of your of your uh, intellect. Um, but yeah, Elador, um, <laughs> Elador definitely shaped my life. But I, I I did a PhD many years ago, as I said with Susan. Um, I did a PhD in Old and Middle English or Medieval Literature, um, and I'll talk tonight a bit more. Hopefully, we'll get to it about Elador's actual influence over over my obsession, I suppose, with the medieval period and with Middle English, the in particular the dialect of English, um, because the first time I ever came across Middle English was in Elidor. I never, I didn't realise it at the time, obviously, when I was seven or eight years of age, I didn't know what it was. Um, but many years later, I find myself uh, coming back to the language and coming back to, to the time period. Um, and I realised Elidor had been like a thread through my entire life, connecting me um, to, to to the path that I was on and it was a very emotional and, and deeply affecting moment for me when I made that realization first um, and yeah and I'm a parent and I'm a wife and I'm uh, largely have no time to do anything because I'm a parent and my wife <laughs> takes up a lot of my time. <laughs> also so. you are a wonderful children's author oh, who's written I mean, you've got how many books do you have you've three middle three. grade novels and an mm -hmm. early reader. Can you talk can you talk about a little bit about those amazing books? Yeah, well, thank you very much for saying they're amazing. I mean, you are next year going to be welcoming your first book baby into the world as well, which is incredible. I can't wait for that. Um, yeah, my books, uh, I've written three novels, as you say, I have The Eye of the North and I have The Starspun Web and I have Skyborn, which is a, like a prequel to The Eye of the North. Um, and then the early reader was written for HarperCollins um, Big Cat Reading Scheme series and it's called The Raven's Call. It's kind of a medievally sort of a fantasy story too um but the eye of the north uh, all of my books i suppose what they have in common is they were all born out of things i loved as a child um i really that's i think why i love the idea behind this podcast so much because like i am such a person i am such a story shaped person or i'm, I'm such a person made of stories like the stuff that i read the stuff that i you know immersed myself in when i was a kid has absolutely put me on the path i'm on um, like, for instance, in the Eye of the North, we have uh, the polar regions, which I was obsessed with as a child. And I read all these books about, you know, Scott of the Arctic, of uh, Scott, <laughs> what, the Antarctic or the Arctic. I forget which one he was on now. And Amundsen and all the <laughs> all the other explorers, you know, and, and and the ones that were and, you know, like, you know, uh, Crean, you know, and Shackleton, uh, our own fellas um, and people who, who just really just grabbed my imagination. And I was just amazed by the, the the landscape of the Arctic regions and how incredible it would be to be there. And. So when it came to write my first book, and also when I was about seven or eight, the same age, kind of a very pivotal age for me in my reading, seven or eight, when I first met Elidor, but also when I first met um, the Childcraft Encyclopedia <laughs> that my parents bought my brother and me when he started primary school. Um, there was a book in that about myths and legends, and one of the myths and legends was about the, the myth of the Kraken or the, the, you know, the mythical oh. uh, sea creature, the Kraken. And it was something that I absolutely just, it just grabbed my mind in its tentacles or arms, whatever the zoological term is and um, I remember sitting and sort of drawing the picture in the book over and over again and you know there was a picture of a, of a kraken attacking a viking ship and sort of you know breaking it into pieces and dragging it beneath the sea and I just it just it just really just grabbed me and my imagination was, was so taken by this this image and by the idea of the kraken so when it came to writing my first novel I knew I wanted it to be set partly or wholly in polar regions and also that I wanted there to be a kraken in it so that's that has happened um, the Starspin Web has something in it called the uh, well, I mean, it's it's about um, 
many many worlds i guess or you know about passing from one world into another which i think elador was a major influence on because that's a similar it's a theme in the book as well um but there's also it mentions a thing called the tunguska event which is again something i read about when i was a little girl in this in one of my encyclopedias or one of my books of facts possibly and again it, it grabbed my imagination and stayed there forever in in my my mind just waiting to sort of come into a story and, and, and find a find a place for itself and, and it did in that story um and yeah, and then there was in Skyborn, I suppose, the circus, which was another thing I loved a lot as a little girl. Um, maybe more so re going to a circus rather than reading about one. Um, but again, that that totally infused my my writing of Skyborn. So everything that I I was obsessed with or that I, or I was interested in or that I read about over and over again when I was a kid has trickled down through my the cracks of my brain, I guess, over the over the decades and have they've congealed into into my stories and. I think, you know, even the ones that I've written that haven't been released yet, it's the same with them. You know, it's 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 such a formative, such a formative age, such a formative time. You know, the stories that you read, the, the books that you encounter, the 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 tales that you first come across when you're at the right age or at, at, at this kind of really malleable sort of amazing age. You know, they just they change you, they shape you, they make you who you are. And certainly that's how it was for me. Um, but over to you, Susan. I have waffled on a lot now. <laughs> no, but it's it's. It's really lovely to hear you talk about them and talk about the the ideas and the images and the stories that you encountered at that like and for me it was seven, eight, nine. That was like that was such a crucial age as well. But I remember hearing Alan Garner in an interview recently, um, talking about his theory of creativity. And I think he, in he when he talked about his theory of creativity, it's like it's when one idea gets kind of stuck in your head and like it just like lodges there and then some another completely different idea comes along and lodges and they connect and they're ideas that have never really encountered each other before and something alchemical and magical happens and I'm just really getting that sense um of that like magic mm. and alchemy when, when you talk about the the influences of your books um and I just I I love I love your book so much I love the you're you're so wonderful at um well there's lots of things you're wonderful at you've like you're one of the best like opening <laughs> chapters like oh, thank um, you person who writes opening chapters so well because I read your opening chapters and I'm like oh my god I'm in I have to keep going it's like <laughs> I'm lost I'm in this polar region I'm with this these these people and you do these just these wonderful adventurous like interesting curious um passionate girls um and that I love so much in your in your books and also something that I'm extremely envious of because I'm not good at it at all is your books are so well plotted that uh, you are so brilliant at plot at story <laughs> so I'm just like anytime I'm I've read your books I'm just like turning the page and I can't stop reading them because I need to know what's going to happen to these characters um it's brilliant thanks a million <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah as um as Sinead said we met like um it's more than 20 no what how many years ago I don't want to know I don't want to think about, think about, about it. it let's just let's just say 20 you're a nice round number <laughs> yeah um we met in UCD um and my PhD wasn't on anything as interesting as Sinead's it was on um oh well I suppose that's that's debatable but it was on um contemporary Irish fiction which I I really cared about but actually what my real love was was children's literature and stories and um magic and for some reason I think I thought that I, I couldn't academically study those things I had to like keep them aside um but I stayed in the world of contemporary Irish literature I, I, for a long time 
uh, and I also had a brief foray into um, in my academic career into 19th Victorian popular novels for girls, um, wow. which was really fascinating. Like That's these writers, um, yeah, they, especially these Irish writers who had fallen out of popularity because they were uh, because they were popular, because they were women, um, because they wrote for girls. And um, so their books, like I bought so many of their books on eBay because no one was interested in these writers anymore. Mm -hmm. um, one of them, Elsie Mead, actually, she was like, she was, she kind of, she almost invented the school story. Or she popularized the, the school story. Um, and she wrote, I think it was like, like 100 books. She was extremely oh, prolific. Hashtag um, author goals, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I think she was one of those writers who like lay on her sofa and had a second dictated to her secretary. Of course, yes. Um, um, wasn't full of her own toilets type of thing. <laughs> no, no. Um, and they're full of um, these very kind of stereotypical Irish girls who mm. are have the gift of the gab and um, a bit wild, but... What, like us, you mean? <laughs> exactly, exactly oh, yeah. like us. <laughs> um <laughs> But throughout my academic career, there was always my own stories, like bursting, like they wanted to be told. I remember sitting at like this academic conference at a particularly, um, <laughs> particularly uninteresting to me paper. And the first line of, or this image of these girls sitting in a wardrobe trying to get to another world came to me. Um, and I could not, I couldn't shake it. Uh, so that yeah, the idea of other worlds and trying to get to other worlds. I've spent most of my childhood trying to get find my way into Narnia or another world. So when I came to write my own book, um, which yeah will, will be out next year, um, which is called "The World Between the Rain," is about girls. Awesome. What a great title! Yeah, yeah. So it took a while to get that. I'm not very good at titles, um, but that was in collaboration with my. Um, excellent agent Kate Shaw um, and it's about yeah girls a, a girl that, my main character Marina is someone who's particularly kind of sensitive to potential portals to other worlds so at the very beginning of the novel she's in a train station watching the rain fall and there's something something not quite right about the way the rain is falling um, and then she meets her grandmother who she hasn't met in a long time and her grandmother seems to have this ability to step between the raindrops um and her and her cousins are staying with the grandmother for a while and the rain the, the, the i'm from clonakilty in west cork and the rain in west cork the rain in ireland has obviously had a profound effect on me um so the, the novel is the novel's quite wet <laughs> it's quite rainy and like in London at the moment it hasn't rained in weeks and I am gasping for some rain gasping some rain. for some Irish rain <laughs> you'll be going home to Clannacilty soon you'll probably have you'll have to refill of it in a few weeks I hope uh, yeah. I think it sounds like then uh, that books like Elidor have had a massive influence on both of us because you were talking about your book as a portal fantasy and I guess in some ways in some ways I guess Elidor is, is the same I mean you, you know more about portal fantasies than me I, I, I think um but it seems to me like that, I suppose we should give a short synopsis maybe of, of the plot of Elidor because it's quite an old book now and it mightn't be one that's kind of in current, you know, circulation among among readers. Um, 
you know, yeah, it's, 19, it was it's 1965. 1965, yeah. 1965, I think, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, basically, it's the story of four siblings. We have Helen, David, Nicholas and Roland Watson, um, who are living in Manchester, um, which at the time is sort of not so much. Well, I mean, it is post-war, but I know it's 20, 20 years, I guess, since the end of World War II. But they talk about it as a post-war city and there's lots of demolition going on and slum clearances and, um, you know, buildings being knocked down to make way for for the new city to emerge um and so the kids are playing one day uh they're bored they're kind of wandering through the streets they decide they're going to use a, a, a mechanical map i guess to find somewhere to go just for something to do um and fate or whatever leads them to uh search for a place called thursday street and we're recording on a thursday which i think is oh no we're not it'll be it'll be released it'll be released thursday. on thursday hopefully um, so that to me, I think, is, is quite a is quite a, a nice little touch. Um, and so they find they find Theresa Street to find it's it's kind of dim, it's demolished. It's, it's you know they have the facades of houses are there, the backs of them are all blown out. And they find a church that's you know being being I suppose ripped out uh, in preparation for being for being knocked down. Um, and the kids find a ball under a digger, and they decide to play a game of football. And they kick Roland kicks the ball, and some kind of mystical force pushes or you know throws the ball much much higher and faster than it should have gone and it sails right through the central pane the central uh, arched window of the church and, and smashes right through it and the, the, the boys are like oh my god you know what did you kick the ball for like that and he says oh I didn't mean to um, but in in the process trying to get the ball back trying to find the ball one by one the kids go into the church um, until only Roland who I think I've always read him anyways being the youngest of the four would you mm. say yeah so yeah, Roland, I've read him yeah, that. yeah yeah Roland the youngest is left and he goes in and in process of trying to find his sisters and brothers he follows a tune from a from a fiddle uh, he hears noise he hears music he hears uh, he hears uh, you know uh, a far off fiddler playing he, he eventually finds the fiddler who, who leads him up the stairs in, in the church and then next thing he knows he's in this incredible other world of, of Elador. Um, and as we discover, Elador is a place of, of death and destruction and darkness and it's, it's dying. And uh, they meet a man called Malibran, a very interesting figure. Um, and he basically asks the kids to take the treasures of Elador back to their own home with them, to take take them back to your world. Because if they're if the treasures are safe, then Elador, Elador can live. Um, and so in their attempts to do that, you know, the, uh, the kids find their way back through the church just as it's dropped just as the, the builders demolish the church and they, they nearly get sort of squished under the under the rubble um and uh they the story then continues with them trying to hide these treasures um uh which in their world kind of revert to being you know a, a length of iron for for a spear um two pieces of wood nailed together for a sword um a, a cup for a cauldron and just a lump of rock for for this amazing uh, stone and they were, those are the four treasures that the kids are given um so in their attempts to hide them they um uh, they put them in the attic of their old house because they're they're moving house as the story as the story starts um and you know there's some kind of amazing power attached to these objects they they bring they attract you know, as you were saying, you were fascinated about the static electricity um, that mm. it, it, it drives all the <laughs> all the appliances in the vicinity crazy. Um, you know, there's electricians called out to try and sort out where is this power coming from? Where is the signal coming from? And of course, the kids know, oh, oh, <laughs> it's these treasures. Um, and they eventually have to wrap them up in plastic and put them in a in a in a, in a dustbin, and bury them in the garden because uh, they, they there's no other way to stop this power from from being picked up. Um, and eventually 
this power tears a hole in reality and we have warriors from Elidor coming through into Manchester and we have them chasing the children and we have the most amazing uh, set of scenes I think that I've ever read in a book. It's something that, you know, even reading it again now for like the hundredth time in preparation for the podcast, the scenes when the magical, amazing character of Findhorn, the unicorn, when he bursts through from Elador into Manchester into a place called Boundary Lane, which I always think mm. is just the most amazing name for I the place where they, <laughs> where they first encounter yeah. the unicorn. Um, um, it's just, it's just the most magical, incredible writing. Um, and, you know, Garner, um, Garner sort of, he, he, uh, he can convey so much with so so few words you know he um he just has this remarkable ability to write i guess like a haiku <laughs> um you know there's there's so much condensed in in his words you know when when you look at them when you know they they just unfold with all these different meanings like Eleanor is such a slim volume it's only you know i don't know how many words it is but it's certainly it's not much more than 100 pages long um but it has so much in it it's the most amazing um depth of world building um I, I don't know he has such a skill with dialogue I think as well which mm. kind of and enables him to create these worlds so effectively and I guess tell us so much about the characters too like he, he he just uses dialogue so well to create the characterization and to create the dynamic between the siblings um to 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 just you know, to, to to not only build a really clear and uh, amazingly detailed picture of the Manchester of 1965 but also the world of Elador, which is which is not really you know they don't spend a lot of time in Elador. Really, I you know strangely, um, Elador is 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 um, not dwelt on, I guess. But when we're there, we can really feel it. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 I don't know. I, I'm 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 left speechless really with admiration for the the achievement that this book is. It's it's magical. It's amazing. <laughs> Anyway, that was probably a lot longer than a than a brief <laughs> a brief synopsis. No, that was wonderful. And like yeah, I was like, oh my god, there's so many things in that that I want yeah, to come back no. to and talk yeah. about and unpack and um where to start. Um I like when you're talking about Garner's concision and the way that he mm. draws characters and the relationships between them with just like it can be just like one line of dialogue but like I think my favorite chapter in the book is the chapter when they've moved the treasures from their old house into their new house um they've put them they put them in the shed I think in the shed yeah and yeah. they're all sitting down to oh, watch yeah, tv yeah. it's like a, it's a it's a Friday evening um, and the treasures, like they're generating such power that it like it sends all of the electrical goods in the house into complete chaos, like the television, like um, the, the the screen blurs and uh, cracks. Well, the screen doesn't crack, but the, the images yeah. crack and the electric razor upstairs starts going. The car starts going, the fridge and the washing machine and like just all of the all of the electricity goes wild. I think Helen says at one point that she's like, it's as if it's they're alive. Um, and there's such a sense of like foreboding and and uh, foreboding and horror and like the, the wonder of like the magic from Elador intruding into our world in this very kind of mundane way in like mm. in electricity and in, in electrical goods. Um, and you've got that combined with then like how the family are trying to cope with the television networking on a Friday night <laughs> and what they're going to do. And like there's a lovely like um, 
image of the mother like the father says to her like why don't you read the newspaper and she's like taking the newspaper and she's turning the pages really purposefully like I am reading the newspaper but I am not happy about it and it's just just brilliantly real mm. like what would actually happen to a family if all of their electrical goods went wild and they had to like resort to yeah and I don't know and magazines <laughs> yeah I'm assuming you're old enough as well to remember the days when we had TVs with vertical hold and you had to have the, the knobs and you know to sort yeah. of keep, keep the picture from flipping up or flipping across I mean I remember our first TV you know in, in in the 80s when I was reading this book for the first time it was so real to me because I knew exactly what it was like for the vertical hold to go on the TV and, mm. and for the, the picture to be flipping up and flipping up or to be to have you know to have the image where you have the, the bottom of the screen is the top of the image and the top of the screen is the bottom of the image and it was just so that, that bit is just so real to me and I love the fact that and like you're saying the the sort of the the horror of it or the you know the horror of the the sensation of all these things coming to life in your house is so scary because it's so easy to imagine in a way you can mm. everybody can imagine what it would feel like for your father to come downstairs with his electric razor buzzing in his hand and the plug in his other hand going, it's not plugged in, how is this happening? Yeah. Or for the, the food mixer to be going in the kitchen until two in the morning when it finally burns out the motor and stops, you know, uh, it, that, that bit was, it really stuck in my head as well, how effectively he creates the sense of something really weird is happening here. Um, and he doesn't have to resort to, you know, blood and gore or battles or, you know, anything like that. It's purely done through everyday objects doing unexpected things and it's just mm. it's a masterclass it's a masterclass in 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 writing uh, and just in, incredible um yeah and I love that like that relationship that continues throughout the book of the magical world and our like everyday ordinary world and the way that they kind of cross over and overlap and interact with each other mm. and that the porch of the house is the door that Roland imagines to get himself into the mound of, I can't pronounce, can you pronounce the? Boundary, I'd say. Boundary. Um, <laughs> and then, like, uh, continuing Probably afterwards. Van Dewey, maybe, I don't know. Sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Our Welsh isn't good enough. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Welsh listeners can uh, tell us how to pronounce it. Um, but yeah, so he imagines the the port the the door of the their new house as the entryway into the mound where his siblings are kind of imprisoned and where he has to go to rescue them and to get the treasures, uh, which is a very sinister place. And then when he's back in our world, he he um, when he's back in our world, he. Um, He's afraid of the door because the door is now a, a kind of a, it's, it's a sinister liminal space. And Garner does that brilliantly through the fact that like that door, there's no um, front garden. The door opens directly onto the footpath. So there's already a sense of like the outside not being separated enough from the inside. And you get that th throughout, throughout the That's the a really book. good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. There is a very immediate um, sense of the door opens straight into their living room as well. So yeah. there's no, there's no, there isn't even any like hallway to defend them from, you know, from, from the outside intruders. world. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. From like real int intruders in our world, but also and, the intruders yeah, from Yeah, and Elidor. the intruders from Elidor, which come through as well.
Okay, so um, as well as the idea of the, the liminal spaces of the house, the, the, the front door, um, which means, I mean, doorways are always, you know, the definition almost of, of liminal spaces, you know, places that are kind of between worlds, I guess, or places that, you know, you know, the poorest places that kind of lead between one world to another. And um, there's so much of that in this book. The fact you were mentioning there that Roland, when he's when he's instructed by by Malibran, uh, the man he meets in Eldor, um, to, to sort of find a way into the mound, you know, so and he says, imagine a door, any door, it doesn't matter what door it is, just as long as you can see it clearly in your head. And Roland, for whatever reason, he imagines the front door of his new house that they're about yeah, to Yeah, why into. do you think that is? I don't why know. Why is it his new it's, house it's, and it's not really his funny. old house? Because you'd imagine he would be more familiar with the front door of his old house, isn't it? Isn't it funny? Yeah. That always strikes me as, as an interesting thing. And another thing I think I remember reading in an interview with, with Alan Garner or an article about this book years ago is that this, the house, the second house, the one that they've moved into um, in the end of this book is, or the kind of the middle of this book, is actually based on Garner's own house that he he grew up in. So, I mean, that, that's probably why it's so pivotal, I guess, to the to the action in the last the last sort of, you know, the last two thirds of the book or whatever. Um but I also think the house itself is amazing as an as a symbol of of straddling two worlds because you know part of the house is old and part of it is is new. The family that the Watsons have built onto it and they've made you know yeah. new rooms and they've extended it and to make room for their for, for their family. Um, and I think that's incredible too. The idea that there's an old bit and a new bit. So the house has more than one world maybe contained within it as well as being this inadvertent, I guess accidental portal between um the world of, of Manchester and the world of, of Elador um because of Roland's uh, decision to use the front door as 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 his way into the mound of Vandry, which then becomes the portal that the, the warriors of Elador use. They they like they attack and they pour all their energy onto it and they physically attack it um to try and get from Elador into into um into Manchester as well. Um, which of course drives the the family crazy. You know they think it's oh listen to that there's a there's a truck going down the street. You know and when I when I grew up I, I lived in a house very similar to the house that uh, Roland is in. Not that we we didn't we didn't have a door opening straight onto our our living area. We we had a hall, but the our, our or a door, door opening or straight a, into a <laughs> into a different world. world. <laughs> exactly. We had we had a front door that opened right onto the main street. I suppose or the main you know the, going down through my my hometown. Um, and when I was a kid before the town was was bypassed, it was it was like crazy tra like traffic constantly you know 24 hours a day um and when when i was quite young you know uh we didn't have double glazing on our windows so whenever there was a truck or any kind of heavy machine which happened a lot <laughs> going up or down the street we wouldn't be able to hear the tv you know <laughs> while it was passing you know for you know 100 meters either side of the house and so eventually my parents got sick of uh having to sort of you know lip read the tv for you know five minutes at a time <laughs> and they decided to get in the double glazing which made a huge difference to us so when when, <laughs> when Roland is uh talking about or when not when Roland rather when when the when the book when the narrator is talking about the buzzing of the front door and the, and the noises and the strange noises of the porch and all that kind of thing it really struck a chord with me because I says this is exactly you know I could really imagine it it was it was so visceral so so real to me um it was such a because it was just exactly like the house I was living in um, yeah, yeah, no wonder. Like, yeah. No wonder the book had such an impact on. Oh you. my goodness! Like, yeah. I mean, I didn't even say at the start, but you know, I I remember the first time I read this book. I remember the day. I remember the weather. I remember it was a hot, oh, sunny summer's that. day. My friends were all out playing. My mother was downstairs roaring at me to get out and play, and I says, "No, absolutely <laughs> not," <laughs> um, because I I got my copy of Elidor that I still have. It's it's in like it's a I don't think it's the first edition, but it's certainly old. Um, I got it from my cousin um, who uh, is English and uh, might be listening. Hello, Caroline, if you're listening. And she's 
quite a bit older than me and she came to visit one day and of course anything that came from 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 Birmingham from England was cool by default when I was a kid <laughs> so um Caroline giving me this book that she said I loved it as a little girl but I don't want it anymore and I know you're a big reader so will you take this and I hope you enjoy it I said oh my god absolutely and then I saw it had an, a unicorn on the cover and I said I'm absolutely sold I'm I'm invested in this book this is mine but I remember it's the, it the first book I ever read that sort of completely and utterly sucked me into the story of the book. You know, while it was, I mean, literally, you know, a, a bomb could have dropped outside my house while I was reading this book and I would not have even seen it or heard it because this book, I was in Elidor, I was in the book. And I remember coming to the end of it and and crying, as anyone who's Aww. read the end would probably understand why. I'm just being so emotionally, just absolutely just destroyed by it, but in, in this, in a way that, you knew you wanted to do it all again, you know, and closing the book and turning it over and literally starting to read the book from scratch again. I just could not get enough of it. It was it was the book that made me into an absolute passionate lover of stories. I mean, it was the first book that really just sort of exploded my mind to the point where I saw the power of stories. It was a, it was it was the right book at the right moment in my life to sort of completely knock me onto the path that I'm still on you know um of a person who's obsessed with <laughs> with stories with books with 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 uh, the we you know with with i suppose trying to express and 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 bring forth to, for other people like the, the power of stories and, and and how important they are um it's just it's just oh my god I, it's amazing I, i'm getting emotional <laughs> <laughs> but i love I love that it was passed on to you by a family member yeah um, and a family member that you like really respected and it came from Birmingham it came from England over to Ireland so exotic to you (laughs) absolutely yeah it was it was so exotic you know uh, anything that came from my from my aunt my aunt and uncle's house in Birmingham was uh, uh, was the bomb by definition uh, you know uh, they were just so cool <laughs> so yeah so I mean and I have I have, I have a couple of editions of Elador now somebody one of my dear friends who since passed away sadly she she gave me a first edition of Elador for, as a present oh, for wow. my birthday years ago it's an amazing thing to have I, I don't read that one because I'm so sort of precious about keeping it in it's perfect condition um you know but I, I have my, my my working copy is the one I got when I was a kid so me is, I know this isn't going to oh I have the same same one yeah the one with the unicorn and Roland with his spear yeah, yeah, yours looks a lot. Yours looks it's a lot a, less I'm, battered than mine. <laughs> well, yeah, because I've, yeah. I've it's only read been read twice. Oh, right. <laughs> well, I bought it secondhand actually. Um, it's the because the obviously the listeners the can't lion, see what we're looking at, but it's the Armada, Armada, lion. Armada lion, yeah, from nineteen seventy-seven, I think it is, or seventy four. Sorry, first published seventy-four. Yeah. My impression is May seventy-four. Yeah, but it's originally yeah, nineteen sixty-five. Yeah, so. because I bought this in a secondhand bookshop in Belfast actually because my first academic job was in Queens in Belfast and there was this, this amazing secondhand bookshop that whose name I can't remember but that I always had a look in and I'd heard of like so this is when would I have bought this 2007 um, and I'd always heard of Alan Garner but I'd never actually encountered an Alan Garner book like there was none in my local library I'd never seen any in the shops and so when I saw this, actually, it was a it's a it was a box set of his first four books. Wow! And I saw it in the bookshop, and I clearly remember actually when I bought it, the the bookseller saying, "Oh wow, you're in for a treat." Amazing! And then for some reason, it took me yeah, it took me years. Like it took me another like 
I can't do the maths, but however many years it took to to get <laughs> back to I don't I don't do maths either. It's all fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like that's another thing that amazes me about Alan Garner is that I think for some reason I I, I don't know why this is like he had such a small fan base in 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 some ways, but they're they're such a devoted fan base. Like people who love Alan Garner love Alan Garner like deeply you know in their soul <laughs> you know but not enough people oh, yeah. know about him you know like when I when I do school visits I haven't done one now for a while because of the Anini <laughs> but whatever um when I used to do them I, I always talk about the books that made me who I am today and Elidor obviously is top of the list and whenever I ask has anyone heard of the book like nobody not even the teachers I think one time in on one school visit in the UK somewhere like a teacher put their hand up and said they'd read it as a kid I'm like oh thankfully thank god somebody has heard of this book you know, um, so I love spreading the the Alan Garner love wherever I go, but I, I just don't know why he's he's a. Uh, it seems to me anyway that that he isn't as well known as he as he should be. So hopefully this podcast will help to rev- rectify that, because this book this podcast genuinely Booker Longlist <laughs> <laughs> well, the Booker Longlist of course he's longlist of the tre- treacle walker. So go Garner, let's hope he uh, let's hope he wins. Um, would be great a great way to to top off a brilliant career that he's that he's had over the years. Because yeah, I can only imagine the impact this would have had on me when I if I read it when I was seven. Because mm. when I read it at the ancient age of twenty one, whatever you were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like, I was like, I have actually for the last few weeks been on this like complete deep dive into everything Alan Garner. I've just become completely obsessed with him, and uh, that's why I was text- I texted you because I was like, I know Sinead loves Alan Garner. I need to talk to someone about these books, this man, this writing, this these worlds. Um, and I, with Elidor, because each one of his books is it's so, it's so unique and it's so him. And like one of the things I loved about Elidor was the fact that we go into this fantasy world, but we're going into a fantasy world in a city. Yeah. And unusual, you know, for him, like, because normally he has kind of rural settings. So the fact that Elidor is yeah. in an urban setting is, is kind of unusual for him. Like, you know, the other, the other like books, you know, the moon of Gomorrah and the worst of Brissingham and, and um, the owl service, you know, they, they're, I think as far as I'm memory serves, I mean, they're, they're more rural settings than, than, than Elidor. So the fact that it's in a city, I think is, is noteworthy, first of all. And, and it and, still feels noteworthy. It still yeah. feels like quite unusual to encounter like a portal to another world in like a wasteland of a city. Yeah. And I know that we want I know that we want to talk a lot about wastelands. Yes, because um, I think the wasteland motif or the waste the wasteland sort of image or I don't even know what the word is for it, but the, it's there's there's wastelands aplenty <laughs> in this book. And when, when when I read it again, you know, with with a name to talk about and talking about it here on the podcast, you know, I was kind of looking for, you know, what we academics would call intertextuality. You know, the idea that there are other texts that that have had a sort of an impact on this book, or that you know, and you know, Anna Garner definitely has drawn on so many different things to make Elidor what it is. Yeah. Well, rather than intertextuality, we could say story shaped. Story shaped, absolutely. The stories that shaped him. And I think one of the ones that I found most, I don't even know, poignant maybe is the word. Like I, I could really relate. I, I was, you know, in, in the research for this podcast episode, you know, I was reading about um, uh, the the play that Louis McNeese uh, had broadcast on the BBC in 1946 called The Dark Tower, um, which Garner recounts listening to as a child, you know, and I know that that, that poem sort of or that story rather that play has had an effect on on him 
as a creator, you know, and the idea that then he would go on to create such amazing work that have had such an impact, an impact on, on me and so many other people. It's purely, that is exactly what Story Shaped as a podcast is about. The stories mm. that shape us and then the stories that we go on to shape, you know, as a result of how we are, we ourselves have been shaped by the stories that we've taken in. Um, but certainly that that play is is one of the sort of, I suppose, the sources or the, the shapes, the story shapes that have made Elidor what it is. Um, but there are, there are so many, like, I mean, even this, the book begins with an epigraph from King Lear, you know, the, the quote from, uh, I think it's Edgar says the words, you know, child Roland to the dark tower came, you know, it's part of a part of a speech that's largely gibberish as far as I, I recall. Um, but that in that in turn went on to influence uh, Browning, who wrote the poem Child Roland to the Dark Tower came, um, which again is about, I suppose, questing. I mean, it's it's one of these crazy fever dreams of a poem, you know, isn't it? Where the character of Roland is questing through a dark, desolate wasteland against an unnameable, unknowable foe, you know, and his quest relies on Roland's own courage. I mean, that's exactly what this book is about, too, you know. Um, and there's other, I mean, there's also a, I found this amazing when I read about this, there's a, a 19th century folktale called Child Roland, um, which is about uh, a character called Roland, his two brothers and their sister Bird Ellen, which I mean, sounds a lot like Ellen, which is the sister in Elidor. Yeah. And literally, they the very same thing happens. They, they kick a ball over a church um and they lose the ball and then ellen or bird ellen in and in, in, in her attempt to get it back she goes around the church with her shins or anti-clockwise which of course we all know you should never tells. go around anything with never her shins. go with her shins <laughs> <laughs> so she gets uh, she gets taken to fairyland and then her brothers try one by one to rescue her and it's roland the younger brother the youngest brother who gets a magical sword from their father um and is told to use it use it at will <laughs> basically and so he he saves the day. And I often, I, I when I was reading Elidor again, um, I noticed that when Roland, when our Roland first goes through, Roland Watson, when he first makes his way through to Elidor through the portal in the church, he finds a, a like a weapon, a weapons rack, and he and he tries to take a sword and he puts it back because mm. it's too heavy. And he says it's, it's too heavy to be of use. And I thought that was interesting, you know, that it was like he was trying to take on the mantle of the the other Roland in the in the in the folk story and then said nah that's not me you know I'll find another weapon and yeah. of course then Malibran gives him um the spear you know and that's what he uses to to break the spell over his sisters his sister and brothers and, and save them um you know and I, I love that I think Garner's drawing on all these sources but he doesn't you know he doesn't slay I suppose he doesn't you know he's not pernickety about how he uses them like he plays with them and he changes them around and um I certainly think he, he does that a lot um you know, and then I think when you and I were talking about this before we recorded the podcast, we were talking about uh, Elliot's The Wasteland. We're talking about wastelands in general. And you know, I know you have a particular love for for that poem, um, you know, a quest, again, a quest to a confusing influx place where it's impossible really to say what reality is. You know, and I think that's very evident in how Garner describes Elidor, you know, a place where I suppose, you know, things look 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 one way and yet seem to and yet are another thing you know and the example I, I was thinking about of this was um Roland's going through a you know a kind of a, de a dead forest um and um this amazing image that Garner uses is you know uh thing, things are things things are dead and you know an, an oak would turn to dark water or an oak mm. would turn to black water at a touch you know so the idea that you could touch a tree and it would instantly dissolve into into black sludge or black water. And I just thought that is incredible. Like the things look one way on the outside, but yet underneath there's something totally different, um, which is exactly like the wastelands that he's drawing on to write his book. But it also reminded um, me. Sorry, go on. 
No, keep going. <laughs> that also reminded me of the, the way the the way the buildings are described in in this post-war Manchester. You know how um, you know the facades remain, but the back of the building is blown out because they're they're being demolished, or then the post is being demolished. You know, so we have this idea that things can look one way from one side, and the other way uh, from the other side, rather they look or they seem the reality of them is completely different. You know, so that that image is is I think is used to great effect in in Eleanor. Now I'm going to stop talking. No, but that's like that image is that that beautiful that oak would turn to dark water and the touch and that like yeah that sense of everything being so transient or like dissolvable is something that runs throughout like every aspect it's like a like a thread that that pulls everything in this novel together because the whole novel is about wastelands and transience and change and you know the children they've just moved house they're moved they're like in the novel they're in the process of moving house um and as you say that the the new house is like it's it's old and new that and the new house was like it was once a house in the countryside and it's now as part of the new manchester suburbs mm. so that's another thing like a slight tangent uh, that i loved about it is that like there's magical stuff happening in the suburbs and the suburbs are like another liminal space or like between the city and between the countryside and they're new and um there's that when they go to that party and they're walking back uh when they, when they encounter Fintorn and they're walking back through Boundary Lane um this the new estate is like half finished and, and the houses are empty and it's just the sense of everything in the process of change and the children themselves are in the process of change as well uh, because we're never told what age any of them are but you get the the sense that the older ones are like further into puberty and nicholas and david are particularly it's particularly nicholas isn't nicholas, it? yeah, like, Nick, yeah he's very is sardonic mass, yeah he's a total teenager isn't yeah. he and he's it's like he's it's like roland's almost almost being left behind i think so i got this idea that roland is like he's the one who sees everything roland sees everything he sees the most like i'm just sort of slightly tangential but the bit when the unicorn breaks through, as you were saying, and the power of Garner's dialogue. I mean, I, I have it marked in my in my text here, but the the absolutely incredible way that he conveys the amazing breaking through of this unicorn is that it's it's all done through dialogue. Um, well, it's it's quite long, but the the kids are like they've seen the horse come through, and it's all literally done by dialogue. It's like, is everyone okay? Said Nicholas. Yes, I ripped my coat. That was a near do. Said David. I didn't hear it all to let. I didn't hear it to the clattered onto the bridge. Did you? It's probably bolted from the riding school, said Nicholas. They didn't have a saddle on, said David. It's broken out of its stable, said Helen. They wouldn't have left it outside in the winter. Yes, said Nicholas. Did you see the mess it was in? It must have fouled some barbed wire. But wasn't it a beauty, said David. That mane. The children crossed the bridge and walked on towards the road. I was scared, said Helen. But the poor thing must have been more frightened than I was. It couldn't have stopped, said Nicholas. If we hadn't got out of the way, it'd have trampled us to bits. Don't say anything to mum or dad, they'd have a heart attack. Gosh, that put the wind up me, said David. Its tail hit me in the face, said Helen. Funny how the moonlight made it look so big too, said Nicholas. That and being on a narrow path. I hope it's not in any pain, said Helen. It may do more damage if it's still frightened. It could have killed us, said David. Yeah, but not a word, said Nicholas. They were on the road now. Hide yourself a bit, Roland. We don't want to look as though we've been beaten up. But Roland hung back in the middle of the road. Come along, Roland, keep together. Why are you talking like this, shouted Roland. You all saw it. Why are you pretending? You saw the horn on its head. I mean, 
that to me is just masterclass in yeah. using using dialogue to get across the characterization. Because I mean, when when you get to the end and you see Roland, you don't even really notice that Roland isn't talking. You know, it's all that the others are kind of shooting these quick sentences back and forth, like they're trying to rationalize what they've seen, like they're trying to sort of, mm. oh God, right, let's let's just keep going. That didn't happen. It didn't happen. And then Roland yeah. is like, it was the, the only, moon. The it only, was the light of the moon. It was the moon. It was the light. It was the <laughs> angle. You know. And then Roland is the one that says. Uh, guys, you know, why are you all doing this? It was clearly a unicorn, you know, and um, but he's he's the one who always like he sees everything and they, they, the others, especially Nick, sort of make him, you know, they give the impression that he oh, stop being such a kid, Roland. You know, you're you're only being you're only being, you know, don't grow up, basically. You know, you're you're being stupid again. This is, you know, and you feel as though he's he's Nick is on the teenage end of things and he's kind of belittling his little brother. But yet Roland is the one that is seeing everything as it is. He's seeing the thing. He's seeing things clearly. Um, and uh, and he's he's telling the truth, you know, but I absolutely love that scene, not only um, um, Garner's dialogue, um, but also that, you know, I, I have a real clear image of of all of them standing together in road and just staring at them going, oh, my God, why are you guys not seeing what I'm seeing? <laughs> you know, yeah. it just really it really conveys the, their dynamic as as siblings. And there's so many there's so many examples of that, you know, the, this brilliant dialogue um, that just gets across their their relationship with each other it's so it's so natural it's so free it's so easy it's so well written um you just feel, and, and the book begins kind of as we say in in media's res like it begins sort of in the middle of a conversation you know um and we're thrown straight into the world of of, of 1965 manchester and into the middle of a an argument essentially between these siblings you know um and we just sort of have to grab grab something and, and get pulled into the story you know and it's just the most it's the most energetic beginning to a book it's 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 fantastic you know um but i've noticed i suppose like reading alan garner's work like in succession i've noticed that he does that often like he starts his books mm. like you're, you're with dialogue and you're often in the middle of like some kind of argument or conflict and you're you're trying to catch up you're trying to figure out what's going on and it, it is that kind of sense of like being thrown into this other world and so you're just ha- trying to figure out what is happening and who these people are and he mm. gives you those clues so beautifully I mean in that in that dialogue that you read out you know you've got Helen who's like she's really concerned for the horse slash the horse unicorn. quote unquote got, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Nicholas who's like really trying to rationalize it away and David who's quite scared yeah um, yeah it's 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 brilliantly done but yeah that 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 sense that the older three are pulling away from the world of childhood and Roland is still there and he can still see it and mm-hmm. he can he, he's he's like fundamentally connected to the the magic the 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 world of Elador that like the the meaning of their of their quest I suppose and one of the things I really loved about that uh, the scene that I mentioned earlier when they're um when all of the elect- electrical appliances come to life is how insistent the parents are on rationalizing like what is happening mm. like they and I, I think it's David who like and the more I talk about it, the more David seems to be like he's a little scared of everything like he's like oh maybe it's a ghost and the mother is like stop us like absolutely no way David like, like don't even mention that um so there's a, that real sense of like childhood being or like someone like Roland being more open to the possibilities of the world and the adults have like completely closed down and the older three are in that in-between space and the whole book is about that in-between space like that in-betweenness is everywhere in the yeah, book absolutely 
you know, and they they go from one place in flux, the the you know the the Manchester that's being cleared and and demolished and rebuilt into this other place in flux, you know, the Elidor that's dying, you know, that that once was this amazing place of such beauty and light, and now that only one corner of it is left, you know, the 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 part that where we where we meet Malibran, which is you know, and I I really want to talk about him for a second because he I just find so interesting and it's it's when it's when I reread the book really that I began to think of him in, in a way that I had never thought of him before and um, we were thinking the two of us were thinking about the the sort of I suppose the sources for this book or not sources as such but you know the the influences the things that shaped it as as we say and I thought about Malibran in, in a new way in terms of his connection to to the Fisher King which is a you know a character from Arthurian lore and you know he recurs so he's such a he has such a, a long and complex and deep history that we don't really have scope to go into here. Um, but he really appears. He's in, like, he's, he's in Elliot's, he's in Elliot's he's in the, the Wasteland as yeah. well. He's in, he's in that poem uh, mentioned mentioned near the end. Um, but just two things about him that that just sort of really struck me as being, oh my goodness, you know, Malibran might be a version of the Fisher King. Um, you know, he he is char- like the Fisher King. For those who might be aware, he's a mythological or folkloric figure that's sort of charged with the keeping of the Holy Grail, you know, so he's, he's, he's a lot, the last in a long line of, you know, a bloodline of people who, who's, who are guardians of the Holy Grail. Um, and Malibran similarly is like a guardian of the light of Elidor, like he's guarding something so precious and so, so vital. Um, and he, and he needs help, you know, he needs someone to help him as the Fisher King does as well. And the Fisher King is always depicted as having a wound that doesn't heal, you know, a wound in his leg or in his lower body. And uh, the, one of the first things Roland notices about Malibran when they get to Elidor is that he has a limp. He has he walks with a limp. He drags his foot, um, and he asks him, "Are you okay? You know what's what's going on with your with your leg, basically?" And Malibran says, "Yes." He says, "You know, I, I'm wounded, and wounds don't heal in Elidor." You know, and I just thought, isn't that incredible? You know that this is another, you know, really deep connection to the idea of the wasteland. You know that the wasteland is on its face a place of destruction, a place of emptiness, a place of sterility, a place of stasis, you know, or whatever. But it's also a place of potential, you know, a place where mm-hmm. anything can happen. You know, it's it's like um, it's it's a place where where rebirth is always possible. Regrowth is always possible. Um, you know, so we have we have the Manchester that's being demolished, but we have the new Manchester that's being built. Uh, you know, we have the Elidor that's dying, but we have the potential for Elidor to be reborn. And here we have I think, in my opinion, anyway, a version of this mythical Fisher King um, walking through it, hoping for help. Um, you know, I just think it's it's just, you know, you don't have to know these things to appreciate the text. You know, it's just for people who might have some uh, interest in, in reading into the background of it that, you know, it, it just adds so much to this really, as I said already, uh, like a slim volume that doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like it should have so much brilliance in it. <laughs> but yet it contains all these multitudes of, you know, and all, all, the, all these worlds and all these incredible potentials I, it's, I don't know I don't know how he did it he must have just uh, had it he's just a genius Garner I guess that's it <laughs> yeah because I'm um, like it's what struck me when I was thinking about like where they go into Elidor which is like in the city of Manchester Thursday Street which is a street that's in the process of being demolished and a, the church that's in the process of being demolished and um, I can't remember whether it's Nicholas or David is who is talking about the fact that there's slum clearances that these streets are all being cleared Mm. and there's going to be more modern houses built there and I found this this quite ambivalence about newness about modernity about um about the move from the past into the present because 
there is a sense of loss in the kind of the demolition of of that area mm. but and a, and, and, a, and a, a kind of ambivalence about that new Manchester that's being built but at the same time train stations and buses are places of sanctuary to the children which are very modern you know because the train the train's described being in like an being an electric train at one point I thought this yeah that's, you know, that, that came yeah. that came, you, you know for 1965 it came across as, as like why would he specify that it's an electric train like it sounded like an important detail I don't think Garner wastes details you know I think if he mentions something it's no it's important <laughs> you know so yeah and, and you know a, a place of as you say a place of it's a sanctuary for the kids but it's a place of flux and change a place of transients where people are kind of passing through there's no permanence so that's important I think as well and yet as you say those places those places of demolition are places of potential and places of rebirth and one of the things that struck me in the novel was this idea of like that that idea of rebirth but specifically a kind of a new morning because mm. um there's a kind of a darkness spreading through Elador and there's a kind of a darkness of and it's it's nighttime as well when the children have that encounter with um the unicorn Feintorn yeah. Um, when they're on the bus, when they're running away from the warriors from Elador and they're kind of seeking sanctuary on buses and, and then they go to back to the, the demolition site on, on Thursday Street. Um, and the spear that Roland has, because we haven't mentioned actually, and maybe it's something you want to talk about, that the, the four treasures correspond to four treasures like from Celtic mythology the four yeah, treasures of the true. two of the Danon. it's another um, another intertextual sort of reference I guess isn't it yeah the four treasures from the of the two of the Danon. so we have the spear the sword of light we have the the the, the leofoil or the the stone of destiny and we have the, the cauldron or the cup that that Helen has um and the, the there's four cities mentioned when when Malabon is explaining the history of Elador to Roland he talks about the four cities of Vindis, Phalias, Murias and Gorias and they're also from the Celtic tradition, you know, there were island cities where the two of the Danon brought these treasures from when they came to Ireland, you know, and there's there's places mentioned like um gosh, let me just refresh my memory here. There's the 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 hazel of something hang on. The hazel of Fordrum and the hill of Ishna or Usna. Um and they're both places in Ireland. They're in Meath and West Meath. And um, the far the Hill of Ushna is the Hill of Tara, essentially in County Meath. Um, and the forest of Mondrum, uh, which is the forest that's, that Roland goes through in Elidor, there is with a forest called uh, Mondrum in medieval Cheshire. Um, so it's like Garner creates a mythic space, you know, kind of between Ireland and and the UK, um, or you know, where where he where he cites his his, his story, um, and it, it definitely has roots. And again, in it's other texts. Sorry. It's wonderful that like if that mythic space is like between Ireland and England, again, another kind of in between us, but also mm. that you were given the book by someone from Man or like from Birmingham. So that yeah. like, the book came to you from England to Ireland. Never thought um, of that. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah the, Sorry, go on. Do you want to say do you want to say any more about the the treasures or the in the um intertext with Celtic mythology? I, don't know. I just think it's important to note that that's where they're from you know that they're uh, they're considered to be you know I suppose handed down to by gods I guess you know or, or what you know deities the two of the land were, were once deities they later became the she or the you know the, the good folk the fairy people of Ireland Um, they're definitely um, element, uh, are objects of great power Um, you know so they're not just 
not just pieces of wood and pieces of metal and, and, a, and a cracked cup, you know, they're 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 immensely powerful um, and immensely significant, you know. Um, because, yeah, that spear that Roland has, like he, it, it, light comes from it. Yeah, especially it's the sword, sword of the, the, sword, or the, the spear of Lu, isn't it? Lu, La, Father, Lu, the light, the god of light, you know. And again, Mondrum, or not Mondrum, rather, uh, Malibran is described a little bit like a god of light as well. He has that yeah. luminous sort of uh, luminescence about him, you know. So and the spear that's... is from Gorias, which is the city in the east, and the sun rises in the east. So there was, a, there, there was all of these things that were saying to me like this there's a new dawn coming there's a new morning um and the fact that but, it happens at new year as well which is exactly know, exactly a time of renewal you know the the medieval text sir gawain and the green knight which garner has often um mentioned in interviews you know he talks about the, the dialect of middle english that was used to write that poem it would be similar to something his grandfather would have spoken all his life um you know we have the the setting of new year which is when the poem happens and we have um, the attack on their house when we have a, an axe that makes three blows on their front door. And of course, there's uh, an axe that makes three blows <laughs> in Gowing in the Green Knight as well. Um, another little cool medieval tidbit that I, I enjoyed reading about. Um, yeah, PhD in medieval literature comes in handy. <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> Another thing I think is important to talk about with this book in particular, um, and I suppose it ties in with your interest in, in sort of portal fantasy, Susan, as well, is uh, the connections between worlds, I guess, um, in, in between sort of Manchester and Elador, and the reason why the kids, when they when they go into the church, why they find, um, why, why they find it so, not, well, not once say easy, but why, why there's such a, why there's such a connection between that particular part of of their world and 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 the castle the ruined castle that they end up in in Elador um you know it's it's a really amazing I think you want to read a piece of from the book about about why the connection is there and and uh, uh, so maybe go on <laughs> I do I do yeah this, this is something that it's something that really struck me when I was reading it um I'll just I'll read it and then I'll I'll chat yeah um so this is um it's from early on in the book. It is not easy to cross from your world into this, said Melibron, but there are places where they touch, the church and the castle. They were battered by war and now all the land around quakes with, with destruction. They've been shaken loose in their worlds. But the fiddle and the noise, what was that, said Roland? All things have their note and will answer to it. You mean like a wine glass ringing? Yes, said Melibron. And when the church answered it, it existed in both places at once, the real church and the echo of itself. Yet more than echo, for although you opened the door here, no door opened in your world. Can you always do this, said Helen. No, the finding is chance. Wasteland and boundaries, places that are neither one thing nor the other, neither here nor there. These are the gates of Elador. And I just loved that idea of, well, first of all, that like wastelands and these places that you ignore or that don't seem meaningful are actually magical they're actually the crossing places between worlds and that also the fact that this traumatic event this this war happened in Elador and this war happened in our world and that somehow 
the 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 kind of the resonances of that trauma wore the walls between the the world's thin i just found that extremely effective and again quite unusual in mm. certainly my reading of of portal fantasies and, um, and very and very emotional like worlds almost yeah. uh, you could say and especially if you think about how an audience of 1965 would have would have interpreted that because i mean i think to us the war is a long ago thing but to them it would have been recent history you know living living history you know like i mean second world war yeah. in, in our world yeah and that 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 that, that events like that create a kind of uh, a noise or a sound or a note that resonates that there is that the trauma crosses the trauma crosses worlds the trauma speaks across universes yeah which is an idea not not to not to big myself up but an idea that I tried to use in my in my own book the Sarspin web I have uh you it's not did. the war but it's it's the Tunguska event which is like a one of these impactful literally impactful events that that creates a kind of a a connection I suppose between 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 worlds that are kind of adjacent to each other it, it was strong enough on one world to be a world ending event and then it had echoes of lesser significance you know on, on worlds that were a bit further away um so I did like it that wasn't a conscious echo of Aldor but then again it shows how shaped we are by the stories we read because now now that I think about it I guess that's possibly where the concept first occurred you know and uh you know so it's great to, to read these stories again and realize wow you know the depth of the connection that you have between your childhood reading and 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 things you go on to make and I suppose that leads me on quite neatly to to one of the things I wanted to talk about which was um uh the word the word there's a, there's a word in Elador which is used um at a point in the story when Helen um the sister in the Watson family when she she discovers a jug they're digging in the garden and she discovers she comes across a jug and she manages to break it while she's digging it up. Um, and she's very upset that she's done it because it's a, it's a beautiful piece of, of, of um, porcelain, big crockery. Um, and she hits it with her spade and she breaks it. And it's got a picture of, it was a creamy brown, I'm reading from the book now, it was a creamy brown colour with a blue tinge of lead in the glaze. And there was the head and forelegs of a unicorn lined in dark red. Gosh, it must be centuries old, said Roland. I'm going to mend it, said Helen. Oh, what a pity. If only I hadn't broken it, I'd give anything to not have broken it. Um, and when they bring it into their dad, they re they realize there's a an inscription or a, or a kind of a motto underneath the picture of the unicorn, and it says it says this: it says, "Save maid that is Machalas, or save maid that is Machalas, no man with me Mel." And the kids don't know what that means, and the dad doesn't know what it means. It's never actually translated or explained in the book. Um, but the word the word Machalas, um, to me is is. <laughs> When I was doing my PhD, when I was preparing for um, a class, I was teaching on the medieval lyric. Um, so medieval lyrics are like short poems. They would have once been set to music. We don't always have the music. It, it didn't always survive. But we have lots of we have lots of these um, little short poems that are called lyrics. And one of them is, is called um, I Sing of a Maiden. And it's a religious poem. It's a religious lyric. Um, it's a poem in praise of a, a prayer, I guess, in praise of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Catholic Christian tradition. And the class I was preparing for was going to be comparing secular lyrics, which can be quite bawdy and fun, um, with the more sort of, you know, obviously staid and respectful uh, religious uh, lyrics. And uh, I wanted to teach the Icing of a Maiden and I never had read it before. And I remember coming across it in the library. I was reading it in, in an edition. And the first line of it is, I sing of a maiden that is Machalas. 
king of all a king is to her son, shit says. And that means, you know, I sing of a maiden that is spotless. I sing of a maiden that is perfect, that is pure, that is without peer. Um, and the, she chose for her son, the king of all kings. And it goes on to talk about Mary and all these different uh, poetic ways. But as soon as I heard, the, I read the word Maculus, I said, oh, my God, <laughs> it was like a chime rang in my head. And I was like, I have never read this poem before, but I know that word. And I knew straight away where I had seen it. And I went home and I got my copy of Elidor, flicked right to the page where Helen comes across the the, the, the inscription with the word Maculus in it. And I actually, I'm not ashamed to say I whipped a little you know, <laughs> at, the, at the deep, the deep emotional connection. You know, this book that I had read as a child that had meant so much to me and continued to mean so much to me um, had essentially led me down the path of studying the subject I was studying because I now I, I, re I now I recognize that uh, even though I don't know the technical translation of, of what the second line of that inscription is, uh, save, save maid that is meculous, no man with me mel, I guess it means, you know, besides only only the, the perfect maid or only the, the flawless, peerless maid can calm me or contain me or can deal with me. That's, that's probably what it means, something like that. And I love the fact that in the book, Helen breaks the jug that this inscription is on. Um, and she laments the fact that she's broken it and her father does fix it. He he glues it back together again and he says something along the lines of, oh, don't worry, you know, you wouldn't even know what had been broken. It's It's been fixed so neatly that you can't even see the cracks. But Helen says, but I know they're there, you know. So on one level, Helen is the maculous maid. She's she's the perfect, spotless, innocent girl. But she's also the girl who knows where her flaws are. She knows where the flaws are. She's she, you know, and and. You know, the, the whole the, I suppose, mythology of the unicorn, uh, which many people probably know is from, you know, uh, the wild beast you, that can be tamed. Sorry, go on. Before yeah. you before you just talk about the unicorn or maybe maybe I'm interrupting you. No, go on. Um, but when you just when you mentioned that about Helen, who is the maculous maid, but also knows where her flaws are. It just really reminds me again, it's like my obsession with Wasteland, but like, it's just that I, it just reminds me of all of those, like those broken places in the book that are the places where magic happens. Go back yeah. to the unicorn. No, that's a really good, <laughs> a really good uh, point to bring in there too. Because again, I think the breaking of the jug is really significant. I mean, the Helen breaks the jug and the unicorn is described as breaking through into our world. And I, I wonder, is like, is there a connection between Helen's breaking of the jug, the accidental breaking of the jug and Fintorn's essentially, I guess, his accidental breaking through into our world because he's running for his life from hunters. You know, there's no, there's no necessity, necessarily, you know, reason why he breaks through, where he breaks through or when he breaks through. Again, it's an accidental breaking. Um, but I love the fact that Garner might be playing with this idea, the, mytholo the mythology of the unicorn being that it's a wild beast that can be tamed by by a maiden, by a, by a, by a pure, sinless, you know, uh, innocent girl. Um, you know, and yet we have Helen, who is a pure, innocent, I suppose, sinless girl insofar as any human can be sinless. Um, yet she is self-aware. She 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 knows where the cracks are. She knows where the flaws are. She knows, I guess, like you're saying, yeah. where <laughs> where the potential is. Um, you know, and I I just I just I just love that. I think it's amazing, and that's that's the the real depth of my personal connection to this book is the word Macalus, which is like the thread that drew me from being the seven year old child obsessed with this book to the twenty <coughs> whatever year old woman who was uh, studying it in college and, and preparing <laughs> preparing to teach and the life I've had since, you know, and not only did it make me the medievalist that I used to be, but it also has made me the author that I now am, um, you know, and there can be no more 
no greater definition of story shaped than that, I guess, you know. Um, but that that is that is one of the most amazing aspects of this book is 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 Garner's, you know, he he wears his erudition lightly, I guess. <laughs> you know, there's so much in the book. And yet you can read it on the level of not knowing anything about the sources he's using or the tropes he's playing with. Um, and absolutely love the story for what it is. And then if you if you are the kind of person who digs underneath that, there's so much there to uncover as well. And that's that's true mastery, I think. Yeah. In like the way that Garner is like an archaeologist and interested in archaeology. I guess, and, like yeah. if you if you want to dig down, if you want to dig down, you you'll find that that jug that will allow a unicorn to break through from another world. Um, oh, the, I love, I just want to say one more thing about that unicorn, but I absolutely love that unicorn. I love how terrifying and wild and beautiful and majestic the unicorn. It's not a, it's not a safe unicorn. This is a, this is a terrifying beast, terrifying, beautiful beast. Sure. And it's also very, you know, in another way, it's also very realistic because it's an animal mm. that's been chased from, you know, it doesn't know where it is. It's it's in a different world. It has no idea where it, where it's ended up. It's running for its life. All it's focused on is survival. Um, it reacts in a very true, a very realistic, animalistic way to being cornered, to being attacked. Um, you know, and the kids describe it that way or the book describes it that way. Like, you know, he's like Roland and he describes it as being like made of light, a being made of pure light. It's beautiful, but also it's huge. It's heavy. It's got, you know, these dangerous hooves. It has a horn that can literally impale a man to through a door. Um, you know, mm. it's 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 pure power and pure majesty. Um, uh, you know, there's no no sparkly hooves and rainbow poop with this guy you know it's it's pure pure power <laughs> it's it's incredible yeah it's a beautiful yeah the end of the book is, is amazing when when Fintorn is discovered and and when he finally he gets to sing which is what's going to save Elador but sadly it is at the cost I suppose I shouldn't I mean spoilers this book is old, older than you know most of the people who have listened to this it's old enough to draw a pension at this stage so hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler to say um you know that, that but it's big spoiler of, if you don't want to know the spoiler, ending Mute me for now. 30 seconds if you don't want to know uh, it's at, <laughs> at the cost of, of Fintorn's life. Um, but then again, you know, it's it's the hunters who who end up destroying him that end up, uh, I suppose, allowing the resolution to happen and allowing the, the, the end of the book to even occur, you know. So in, in the despair, there is hope. And out of know? that, yeah, out of that destruction comes creation. Renewal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, out of the chaos comes comes balance once more. You know, can we talk about the the ending of the book? Like the sure. very the very last line, which kills me. Like every time I read this, um, I'm going to read you. This is again spoiler. I'm going to read you the last two lines. Mm. The song faded. The children were alone with the broken windows of a slum. That line, the children were alone with the broken windows of the slum. That's that's where this book ends. The last word is slum. Like, mm. what am I supposed What am I supposed <laughs> to do with that? <laughs> is there like, is there, is this a hopeful ending? Is this a hopeless ending? Do those terms not even make sense in this book? How do you feel about the ending? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, because I guess the kids are left in a place where they know they've done a good thing you know they they know that they've done what they can they've given the treasures back they can see 
hopefully that light is returning to Elador. They know that they'll never see it again, as in I, I don't think they'll ever make it there again. They'll never see it for themselves, but they, they know what's they know what's happening. They know that they've done what they can. Um and yet they have to live with the knowledge that we were once part of this amazing magical place. We did these incredible things and yet we can never go there again. We have to live our ordinary everyday quotidian life from now on and never never taste that magic again. And I, I think that's that's a deep pain, you know, if you were if you had once if you had once experienced this amazing majesty to to never be able to touch it again, I think that would be hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because it's such a book about loss, loss of growing up. But also that like actually something remind when you were speaking just there, just a, a quote from the book um, I was reminded of that Melibron says, what you have done here in Elador will oh, be yeah. reflected Has in some way in at some time in, yeah. in your world. So that ending is like, so even though they're the last image of them is standing with broke, looking at broken windows in a slum, they have done a good thing in, in Elador and that will be echoed or reflected in some way back in our world in our world yeah that's world. true that's yeah. a very good point actually so we just have to hope i guess that's what the book is about isn't it it's about hope i mean malabron hopes yeah for help malabron hopes the kids will help him uh his hope is rewarded um you know and then hopefully <laughs> hopefully no pun intended um the kids then will will feel the the good vibrations coming from coming from elador um because of what they've managed to do you know that's that's yeah, I guess yeah. the hope we're left with. I guess the ending is I suppose as and you, as you're in your reading of it, uh, which I like a lot. Um, it's it's a hopeful reading, so let's let's go with that. I think that's good. That's, yeah, let's go with hope and let's belief because because I love Roland's consistent belief throughout the book. Like he never wavers in his like care for and concern for Elador and for the treasures. Yeah, he's unshakable in his conviction that it's all mm -hmm. happening. And yeah, absolutely. And hopefully that's not something he loses. You'd hope not. It can be hard to keep that beautiful focus on, on the magic as you grow older, but that's what I always hope yeah. people will take from, from speaking to me in, at school. You know, I, I always say to kids, never lose the spark that makes you, you, you know, never lose the spark of curiosity and, and, uh, and wonder at, the world you know because that that will keep you creating you know that that's what that's what we need for creativity we need curiosity we need wonder so i really hope roland never never lost that and he went on to do great things yeah and i think like again what the book gives you just to like again repeat myself ad nauseum like the book gives you magic in unexpected places it gives you magic in wastelands it gives you magic in like derelict slum clearances it gives you magic at your front door um it's not like magic in this beautiful countryside it's it's magic in cities in suburbs in your washing machine magic in your washing machine i think that's the best <laughs> way, to, <laughs> best way to, to end episode one <laughs> elador a book about magic in your washing machine <laughs> new, <laughs> new tagline <laughs> But um, yeah. Oh well, my God. Well, I think listeners, I hope you have enjoyed um, listening to our discussion as much as we've enjoyed having it. Surely it's been, I, I've been looking forward to doing this episode since we first came up with this idea of doing the podcast. I mean, 
this is this is the book that I would give somebody if they wanted to get to know me, uh, you know, in a sort of a quick <laughs> in a quick way, you know, here, read this book, then you'll you'll know my soul. Um, so, you know, Elador is, is my soul book. It's it's one of my foundational texts and to get to talk about it with somebody as erudite and um, interesting as Dr. Susan Cahill. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Ah, so. Stop! <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but thank you all if you're still here listening to us. Thank you very much for listening being to us with nerd us. Out. <laughs> yes, exactly. But for being with us here for season one, episode one of Story Shaped Podcast. Um, we'll continue um, into the series. Uh, we'll probably have a few of these one-on-ones with me and Susan uh, to begin. And then we will get into talking to our guests uh, a bit later on in the series. Um, and they will be talking about the books that shaped them and the books that they have gone on to shape. So it's going to be great. So I hope you'll stick around. I hope you'll subscribe. I hope you'll like. I hope you'll share. I hope you get your granny listening, whoever. <laughs> and I hope you'll come back again uh, next time to join Susan and, and me. And if you like... Mm-hmm. If you like what? Going. Go on. <laughs> say, if, if you like the podcast, then give us a review. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I keep forgetting that. Give us a review. Five stars is preferable, if possible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we should be back and on with another episode about another fantastic classic children's uh, fantasy novel. Uh, this time one chosen by Dr. Susan Cahill of this parish. One of my soul books. One of her soul books we're going to talk about next time. Um, but until then, we shall bid you a fond farewell. And thank you all so much for being with us on the story shaped, our story shaped uh, podcast, Maiden Voyage. <laughs> <laughs> Makeless Voyage. <laughs> Makeless Voyage, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. <laughs>